0: everyone welcome back to another episode of disorderly dogs the podcast i have a pretty spectacular guest with me um, and we're going to talk all about uh, medication which i know is a very stigmatized topic so that's why i got sophie to join me because she's kind of an expert in that so sophie do you want to introduce yourself for the listeners and kind of tell them more about like your expertise in all of this
1: hi everyone um, my name is sophie white um, i'm a veterinary surgeon from uh, the uk um, I graduated as a vet in 2011, um, and then I went and did a master's degree in clinical animal behavior. Um, so I'm now working as a veterinary behaviorist, um, and really just my main, main area of interest is, um, dogs with human directed aggression. That's my key area, but really anything where, owners are just kind of getting to the end of their tether and they need some help rebuilding that relationship with their pets. That's kind of where I end up coming in.
0: Oh my God. That's amazing. Okay. So I think it's really important to highlight all of the work that went into the titles that you now hold. Um, because I think that there's, especially in the U S there's a lot of people who lab- label themselves behaviorists, which is not true, right? Because they don't have the formal education that you do. So, um, can you tell the listeners what made you go back to get more schooling, to know more about animal behavior?
1: Yeah it was it was an interesting one so I'm I'm always a bit restless like I always want to do something else something a bit different and I always feel like I need to find like that purpose and I was actually doing quite a bit of work in practice with chronic pain um so I was doing acupuncture and I did a myotherapy diploma and I was doing lots of chronic pain stuff and I started to realize and meet people who, and meet other vets who started to really highlight the fact that there's so much overlap between pain and behavior. Um, And around that, and I was sort of thinking, right, do I go and do like a physiotherapy course and go into veterinary physiotherapy? Kind of how can I progress things? um, Or do I focus more on behavior? Um, Around that time I got my second dog Who's technically meant to be my boyfriend's dog? <laughs> it was he he picked him. And did he pick him? Um so he is a challenge, shall we say, and he was a surprise challenge. Um, and I always use him as an example because I'm actually good friends with the charity that he came from. So I know like they weren't doing me over. Um, he just was not as was expected when he got into a home environment. So I had to learn quite quickly how to not get bitten. (laughs) So um, I was really lucky that there was a trainer working at the practice that I was working at who gave me loads of tips and was like, right, okay, like read these books, do this stuff. Here's some basic how not to get eaten by your dog management tips. Um, And I realized quite early that I was, yeah, I had to learn some more. And I think once I started, I just got really into it. Um, and I also sort of thought like, I should probably already know this. Like, I felt like being a vet, I should know these things. And I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Even with all the years of school you had already accomplished. Yeah, so we do, it's slightly different to the US, but we do five years. So I left, I graduated from sort of high school um, at 18, went straight into um, veterinary medicine degree, and graduated at 23 from that. I um, said, and then spent, Um, years in practice Uh, before I actually went and did my master's my master's I did about two years ago but before that I was just kind of doing courses and doing little bits and pieces and I started to sort of dig around because there's not that many prominent behavior vets so I sort of kind of dug around a little bit and started getting in contact with people and looking at like job roles and things for veterinary behaviorists and I kind of realized that I was going to have to go and do a master's degree um to basically I wanted to be accredited with the right people um and I, I think because obviously in veterinary you can't just say you're a vet it's really important to have evidence based to what you're saying and to be able to show your credentials and I wanted to do the same with behavior so I realized I was gonna have to go and do a master's um and I actually then spent a year after that working not as a vet just as a Behaviour and training advisor for a big um, dog rehoming and welfare charity in the UK, which was an amazing experience. Um, So, yeah, so I've got sort of that backing education wise. And I say then I've had sort of a year in a kennel environment as well, which was amazing. And with a charity in the UK, which in my opinion accepts some of the most challenging dogs that will go into rescue in the UK. Um, So, I really wanted to go kind of that route. So my accreditations I'm working on now is I'm already, um, I'm an elite free professional and I'm, um, just going through my assessment process to become a full, um, APBC member who is sort of the main behavior group in the, one of the main behavior groups in the UK.
0: Wow. I love so much that you had like hands-on experience like that, because I think that That's missing from a lot of like you know just trainers repertoires but also I think like in the veterinary field you know what I mean like you have to go and do it because you can think you know things on paper and you have to be able to step up and apply that in real life with these dogs who didn't read the textbook right like they they don't understand
1: that and also um vets have a really weird experience with pets because we 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 do things that, like, we tell other people not to do. Like, we do stuff when dogs are scared and telling us to back off. And we do do things that are uncomfortable and scary and hurt them. Um, and although, of course, some dogs do like coming to the vets, most of them are scared of us. Like, we have a very weird, biased population of dogs that we spend time with. Um, and dogs do not display, display normal behaviour at the vets. So yes you've got a huge amount of experience with some situations um but there's lots of things that you never will actually have done much with or experienced just things like resource guarding the only time you ever see resource guarding at the vets really is kennel guarding um but that's it really like you don't really understand why it happens other than the fact that the dog's scared it feels poorly it's in a weird place it's kind of understandable but you don't really understand anything else about why that behavior develops, etc. Um, So yeah, you have a very skewed idea of the population, I think, working in veterinary. And I think it's really important to try and see normal dogs and normal people as well.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh, right? It's just, it's, it's just it, you can never know it all, right? No matter how much we study or how much we learn, we can never know it all. And I have so much admiration for you for being like, all right, I'm going to get a master's in this. I'm going to learn more. I'm going to keep going. Right. Because I think that that's what it takes. That's what it takes to be really good in this world. Like, especially when we're talking about behavior is you you're humbled every single time. And you have to remind yourself, like, I don't know everything and I'm going to learn from each dog and I'm going to step up to help them. And like, I think that's where a lot of the beauty is, right. Like learning from living with a dog who could bite you, right. Like the crash.
1: And I think it's just, it's building on the knowledge you've got. That's what I really like. I'm doing my master's. There was a few other vets on the course. It wasn't all vets, but there were some other vets there. And, you know, we were saying, actually, as vets, you have loads of really good transferable skills into behavior. You just don't know you do because you don't know enough about behavior to realize it's really transferable. And I think for me, particularly with an interest in human-directed aggression, one of the biggest things is you can keep cool when shit hits the fan like stuff literally <laughs> dies and you can stop it so when a dog's trying to like chew your hand off it's okay you can stay calm you can be logical you don't react emotionally you just process and think okay how is the sensible way to get out of this situation because you've got that skill and I think for me that was one of the biggest things realizing when I got into the environment where I was working with really quite challenging dogs and dogs that were really quite high risk is that if stuff does go wrong, you're you're kind of okay because you you've practiced that when stuff goes bad, I have got the knowledge and I can still put it into place and I can I can cope with this. Oh my god, that's amazing! Right, just tapping into
0: those skill sets and realizing how translatable they are to like this yeah. new circumstances.
1: Because behaviour science is science, like, it's not that hard, like, compared to veterinary, it's not very different, it's veterinary science and behaviour science, they're like, the same, just different sections of it. But I think, if you don't have any behaviour knowledge, you don't kind of notice that you don't sort of make that comparison. So you sort of think, oh, it's something totally alien. And it is. But once you start learning, you're like, oh, this is just like another module at vet school. Like this all makes sense. Um, So I think I think, yeah, that's just kind of need to probably realize that it's not as scary as I think it's going to be. They've got the skill set. And I say they've got some really good additional skills of stress management and being able to cope with drama. Um, You know, they've got the potential there if they want to develop
0: it. Oh my God, that is amazing. I never thought about it in those terms, right? Like just translating those skills. Okay, so um I, I want to hear from you, like what your experience has been like working with like, you know, your community. You know, in the US, I think that behavior meds are definitely more widely accepted because we are blessed with a lot of amazing veterinary behaviorists who have helped that, but there's still these giant stigmas. Can you just kind of speak obviously the UK, but like your community at large, like how people feel about behavior meds?
1: It's really mixed. It is really mixed. Um, I think, unfortunately, you do get some sectors of the training community who do make it quite difficult because they are adamant that behavior mod will fix anything and everything. And I understand, I saw I understand to a degree. I, I, I agree that behavior mod is amazing and powerful and you can do so much, but there are limits. And I think, you know, maybe when we talk about meds in a bit more detail, we can have a chat about some of what they are, but you can't modify behavior that doesn't exist. You can't work on behavior with a dog that is not in a position to learn. You know there are limits to what you can do with behavior mod. And unfortunately there are some sectors who are very much, I think they maybe feel that vets are just giving out drugs because they don't and don't giving any behavior advice. Which obviously if people are doing that, that's also very wrong. We need to be working together. Um, in terms of vets using behavior modifying medications, our licensing systems really crap basically. And um, we've only got a couple of drugs that are licensed for behaviour issues. They're not. Some of them are not actually particularly good options. Like some of them, I wouldn't use very often. Some of them are good. Um, vets are allowed to prescribe off cascade, so they can go off of that licensing system. But that they the kind of the limits to that are on your head be it, basically. So you can go off it, but that's down to you. And the problem with that is if you don't, if you don't have the knowledge, then you're not just gonna go off and use something you've no idea about because you don't know what's gonna happen. So, because we don't get taught about it much at vet school, uh, well, at all really anymore, uh, I didn't anyway, I think now maybe a little bit better. Um, Lots of vets just don't feel comfortable. And in the UK, um anyone who's not a vet is not allowed to recommend medication so you can't see a trainer and in theory the trainer shouldn't say to you this is the drugs i think you should have go and speak to your vet they're meant to say i think you should speak to a vet about medication um so i think what's really important is that you work together because the vets need the information from the trainers and um the trainers need the vets to give the medication um But I think it is a very mixed view. We do have unfortunately some people who just think, I think they think we're being a bit crazy. Like they're a bit like, why would your dogs need Prozac? Like, (laughs) what what are they worrying about? Um, And then you've got those who are just sort of like, you don't need it. If you just train your dog, you wouldn't have a problem. Um, So it is tricky, but it is improving. I'm definitely seeing like more referrals come to me where vets have actually tried stuff and they have used medications. Um, And even if that doesn't work, that's still really useful information for me. I'd rather people try something than just not do anything.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think something like from, from my view of things, like just being the trainer, right. Is that I think a lot of owners carry shame in feeling that They could have done something differently with the dog so that they wouldn't need medications. And I want to just circle back to something you said about, like, you know, trainers not recommending medications, right? Like, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I do not know all of that information. And I think that it's really important for everyone listening who is a trainer just to reiterate we should not be telling our clients about specific medications. That is way far outside of our scope of capabilities. And like, Mm -hmm. that's when we really need to partner with the vets, right? Like, and uh, very often I will be like, I think that you need to talk to your vet about medications and that is it, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, that doesn't mean you shouldn't educate yourselves because I say, a lot of vets, want some help like a lot of vets would quite like it if you just say to clients you need to have a chat with your vet but then you speak to the vet and say do you know what you might like to use and if they're (laughs) like "Uh, no then that's fine you can say well I I think you might like to you know look at this paper or I've heard that this drug might be useful because xyz And a lot of the vets will be quite happy about that because they probably don't have that much idea themselves. So at least you've given them a a clue of where to start looking. Um, So definitely, you know, yes, you need to educate yourselves and it's fantastic if you have all that information, but you don't need to share all the information you've got with the client. Um, You know, you can have that conversation with another professional.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So um, can you share just a little bit about like, your clientele? Like, do they come to you already ready to like start some sort of medication and just like trust you as the professional? Or does that take some like explaining and helping them understand like why the meds can be beneficial?
1: Um, I haven't had any clients where I think meds are useful where they haven't wanted them. But (laughs) I do think I have a biased population because I tend to get clients where they've tried maybe sort of the normal trainer behaviorist route they might have been redirected back to the vets or they might have just given up and gone back to the vets and gone oh this isn't working and then their vets quite often go um no I think you probably do need something but I don't know what that something is and I think if we're going to be doing something we ought to be doing that with someone who knows what's what they're doing so Quite often I get cases where they're quite up for it. Not not all my cases use behaviour meds, but I think a higher proportion of mine do than many. Um, But that's also often because I get cases that have medical involvement. Um, I think that's for a couple of reasons, partly because I do work on veterinary referral. So sometimes vets send me stuff and say like, I know this is going on medically, but there's also something going on behaviourally don't know what to do about that bit. Um, But also probably because I do quite a bit with aggression and a lot of aggression cases have undiagnosed pain or poorly managed pain. So um, I guess that's another reason for, when we think about why might we use psychoactive medication, Um, managing risk is one of those. Um, I put my dog, um, my tricky dog, I put him on floxetine early on because basically someone told me it might be a good idea so i thought i'm going to try it um and it did help because it 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 it, re- it reduced his sort of speed of reaction basically and it gave me gave us time to learn what his triggers were and put the management in place and put some training in place but medication can be very helpful for dogs that are a high risk in terms of aggression um But there's other reasons, you know, you might medicate. So I think the the key things is that behavior mod isn't quick. We know that. We tell our clients that all the time. So when you have an animal where either you really need to stop them biting people because someone's going to get seriously hurt or the welfare has got to improve really soon or otherwise you're going to have to be thinking about euthanasia because this dog cannot cope, then you can't behavior mod your way out of that because we we know it's not quick. Um, so meds can be really, really helpful in those situations. Um, and also in real life, you can't avoid triggers all the time. Like I know there's, there's certainly a sector of the community who are adamant that they can manage triggers to the nth degree, but that's not real life. And it's certainly not real life in kennels. Like if you have a dog that doesn't like dogs, there is not much you
0: can do about that while it's in kennels. Right, Yeah, and I think, you know, most of my work is with reactive dogs, right? And that is something that, like, I very compassionately express to my clients, right? Is that, like, it is not on you to manage the environment 24-7. You can do the best of your ability. But, like, if the help of medication can bridge that gap between you doing your damnedest to avoid triggers and keep your dog under threshold right? Like that can get you to the the end goal a lot faster than just behavior modification alone, right? And I think that, yeah. I think that that's why there's still so much of like the punishment-based training so prevalent is because they promise quick fixes, right? And like, yeah, obviously, you don't, stop this right, exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, if I'm, I'm understanding what you're saying is that like, Yes, behavior modification could be so super powerful, but not quickly and not with the dog who we cannot control the environment and keep them under threshold.
1: Yeah, but, you know, and and if we have dogs, like if we think about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and things, if dogs do not feel safe, they are not going to learn effectively. And your behavior mod relies on them learning. So if you're like, if you have a super, super fearful dog, if you get one of these maybe rescues or dogs that have come from another country and they literally rock up and are like they don't move they just sit there um what are you going to do with that where is your in because unless you're going to get a robot to train the dog you can't do anything because they're scared of people they're scared of the smell of you they're scared of the sound of your voice they're scared of being in a house they are scared of everything and that is not can, you can't learn in that environment. They are worried about not dying a terrible death in their brain, not, they're not worried about learning clicker and learning some new skills. That's not top on their priority list. Their priority is surviving the fear that they're experiencing. Um, and I think that's it, you need an in. You can't train unless you can get your foot in and start building on something. Yeah,
0: no. And I, hope, right. And like, I've had those clients over the years, whether it's the extreme fear or like, they're literally a bite risk, right. That like, without the intervention of medication, we never would have been able to do the training right? Like the training was possible because of the medication. So I think just for everyone listening, this is just a really important conversation that like, even if your dog doesn't need meds that you can take to those conversations with other people, right? Like our dogs don't deserve to feel extreme fear and us saying like, it's okay, we're just going to give them time and the training is going to work, right? When maybe that isn't the best route right away. Um, And I think that, you know, oftentimes as the trainer, I get called in because the dog has already bit several people, right? And the dog has already, they've already tried training and they've done all of this stuff. And like, I can't help them without the addition of the help of a veterinary behaviorist and medication, right? Like, and I know that. I think that as trainers, we have to know the limits of our capabilities, right? And that like, I'm always very upfront about like, I can't help you until you get that the support of a veterinary behaviorist first.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, it's not a reflection on your skill. It's not because you're not a good enough trainer. It's just because that's, it's not how things work. Like, is that your dog is not going to be paying any attention to anybody's training if it is terrified. And yes, you can break down your triggers, but for some dogs that it is just too much. You just cannot get that starting point and as as you said even if you do have a starting point if you know this is going to be a really long road and that dog is terrified why would you leave it being terrified for months until you get to a point where they're not terrified when you could speed the whole process up and make them feel better in the meantime by using medication and I think a lot of it comes down to misunderstanding about what the medications kind of are and what they're purposes and most dogs don't need medication forever some do just like some people some dogs brain chemistry is not um neurotypical I don't like saying normal because they're not abnormal there's nothing wrong with them but it is not our average neurotypical brain so some dogs are just not quite where we would expect them to be and when we then put them in a weird human world they're never going to process that very well they, they they're going to need long-term support with that but those are probably relatively rare we also have some dogs who yeah maybe if they were in a different home they wouldn't need meds but there is not that many homes that want for example a 60 kilo dog with a serious bite history like seriously that dog other than the home it's in and if the home it's in loves it and is putting the effort in as long as they can keep people safe and keep the dog happy if they need meds for that to work then in my opinion so be it because there's not another option other than euthanasia for that dog
0: and it increases the quality of life for the dog and for the human Right. And I think, you know, that's such an important part of this conversation is that like, obviously the meds work for the dog's brain, but the fact that these humans have stepped up to manage and care for these dogs who are not easy at all, they deserve some of that peace too. Right. And like knowing that there's going to be quicker progress, the dog is going to be easier to, to read in some circumstances, right? Like there's a lot to gain for both the dog and the human.
1: Yeah, and I just, it's, it's, if we look at other aspects of veterinary, like there might be dogs who wouldn't need daily pain relief if they lived in a different home. Say they are arthritic and they live in a flat and they have to go up quite a lot of stairs and, you know, their owners help them out, but it's not ideal. And because they have to do all those stairs, they probably need daily pain relief. And that's fine. Like, you're not going to say to them, well, sorry, you have to rehome your dog because it's stiff. And if it lives somewhere else, it wouldn't have to take medication. Like, you wouldn't do that. You'd just be like, oh, that's nice that you care that it's in pain and you're giving it medication. So that's fine. Let's do what we can to make it easy for it. We're not going to tell you don't deserve your dog because you've got stairs. And we're not going to think badly of you because you want pain relief for your dog. Like, those are, but it just doesn't make sense in my head why we see those as completely different aspects if people want care for their pets and they are willing to put the time and the money and the effort in then I think we need to support them in that and that does mean that sometimes you know we have to guide them owners aren't going to know what they need but they know they need something and so yeah they might come to you and say like I get this quite a lot as they sort of say we just need to sedate him and I'm like, no, 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 you don't need to sedate him. I know you feel like you need something and we can help you with that. You don't need to sedate him though. Um, Cause that is the common misconception is that behavior meds just sedate dogs. Like that is not what you should be using. There are a few old drugs that people used to use a lot, which were basically just sedative, but that's not what modern psychopharmacology is. And, as you say yeah owners might come to you wanting that because they just want their dog to not be lunging around trying to bite everything um and that's fine because how would they know um but that's where we step in and guide them and sort of explain why you don't want a sedated dog you want your dog as it is now just a bit less like a bit less reactive a bit less aggy a bit less scared just moderate it a bit and and that's surely that's what you want. You don't want a zombie and that's not ethical and that's not what our drugs do anymore. Yeah.
0: And I think that's something that I hear a lot from my clients is that like, they really love their dog and their dog's personality, but they just need help with some of these things. Right. So I love that you clarified that, right. That like, we're not trying to change your dog's personality. We're trying to make it easier for your dog to cope and not experience extreme fear, right? Feel like they have to act aggressively, right? Like we're only trying to help the dog be the best version of itself. Yeah. yeah. And there's, there's just a lot of misconception around that. And unfortunately, you know, some of that is perpetuated by the dog training community, right? Which that's, that's a whole nother rabbit hole. We're not going to go (laughs) now. but okay. So I want to, I want to talk a little bit about how it actually works right like and I know that there's a lot of medications and obviously we can't speak to like every single medication and every single dog but like I think that the neuroscience of all of it I think that having like a a grasp on that I think is really helpful for everyone and understanding like this is why we're using the meds and this is how it's going to help us with the behavior mod.
1: Yeah so I guess kind of the the kind of preamble to that is understanding how you choose drugs so we don't medicate the behavior like i don't use x drug for a reactive dog or y drug for a dog that's hiding in the corner or something else for dogs that bite like that's not how we approach it so we're looking at altering neurochemistry in the brain so we need to understand what neurotransmitters we're wanting to affect. Like what do we actually want to do to the brain? Um, And when we're thinking about that, we need to think about underlying emotions. So effective neuroscience is essentially the science of emotions in the brain and the nervous system. And we know that different emotional pathways have different predominant neurotransmitters so that's helpful. And uh, we just kind of, we know what a lot of those neurotransmitters do and what effects they have on the brain. Um, but we also have a lot of evidence and research from um, human and, and animal psychiatric disorders. And that's often kind of back to front because often we're sort of going, oh, that's really in- interesting about humans. Let's see what's comparable to animals. But of course the animals were probably used first to learn for the human <laughs> side of things. And although that might not be pleasant, the information is there. So use it. Like those animals probably had a really not great time. So we might as well make sure that the information we got is used well and it, and, you know, it goes on to serve and help other people. Um, when I say people, I mean dogs as well. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we need to think, yeah, basically, what science is there behind this? What are we trying to achieve? And our drugs very, very rarely, if ever, only affect one thing and that's why speaking to um a vet is really important because lots of the drugs we use don't just affect the brain they affect the rest of the body so we need to know what's going on medically um but it's also why not every dog that's fearful i don't give them all the same drug because it depends on maybe different aspects of their personality maybe different i guess problem behaviors they're having that aren't the big issue right now. Like, they're fine, they're not ideal, but they're okay. But we don't wanna give them a drug that's gonna make that worse. So, you know, you've got to tailor it to the individual. Um, and my thought might be useful is talking about a couple of different situations where I often find behaviour uh, modifying drugs are helpful. Um, so one of those is um, stereotypies and repetitive behaviours. And um, there's like a million different terminologies around this. So um, you might know them as abnormal repetitive behaviours, ARBs, um, compulsive behaviours, OCD behaviours, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Stereotypies are essentially the very extreme, very kind of formalised version of repetitive behaviours. When we say repetitive behaviours, we mean behaviours which probably aren't abnormal in themselves, but, become um expressed at a level that is abnormal or in context are abnormal and they are literally repeated time and time again so you might see things like shadow chasing um tail chasing um in kennels you sometimes see like wall licking um all these kind of behaviors where like those things are not unusual but a dog should not be spending 15 minutes doing them multiple times a day or they shouldn't be doing them instead of, getting attention from the person that's just come to see them in their kennel etc so what we know about those sort of behaviors is that there is a lot of change in the brain like these are these are sort of the i guess the psychiatric illness section of these are not just dogs that are a bit scared or a bit excited or a bit frustrated about stuff some of these dogs actually have a structural changes in their brain so Dobermans um, are really prone to flank sucking and blanket sucking and some studies have actually shown this structural change in their brain so for some of these dogs their brains are not the same as other dogs like you you can't just train their brain back to a neurotypical brain um, and we also know that there's a lot of change in the brain once these behaviors become established so when you first start seeing these behaviors, yes, behavior mod might solve your problem. If you can stop the triggers and you can provide alternative outlets, yes, you might be able to deal with that. But it's very, very unlikely that you're there because unless it's your dog, you probably, or you know, it's your, you're in kennels and you see it really early on. These don't get presented to you until later. So yeah. once they're established, you actually get changes in the neurochemistry. So we get lots of dopamine pathway activation and lots of um, endogenous opioid activation. Basically, it's like an addiction. The more you do it, the more your dopamine and your opioids go up and the more they go up, the more you do it. It's a cycle and you just go round and round and round and round. And it once maybe made you feel better, but now it's becoming really debilitating for your life. Um, what we do know though is that if serotonin goes up the, um, the repetitive behavior frequency goes down so we know that from research in humans and other animals so with these dogs we we need to stop this behavior as soon as possible because it is psychologically very damaging it stops normal behavior but some of these dogs i've seen dogs that have literally eaten part of their tail doing these behaviors like literally strips the bone down they will cause themselves serious physical damage and physically stopping it so amputating the tails they can't reach it putting a buster collar on them putting them in a small crate is not appropriate it's hugely psychologically damaging because they they still need an outlet for that behavior they will just do something else you put them in a crate they'll probably start bar biting if you, you know take doberman's blankets away they'll suck their side instead they will find another outlet so we can't stop it that way we need to stop it sort of internally Um. yes of course you can do lots of management in terms of let's make their lives less stressful let's try and help them with all these aspects that might be making it worse but essentially we need to increase serotonin because we know that increasing serotonin is going to help so two of the really common drugs we look at are um, chlamipramine, which is a tricyclic antidepressant, and fluoxetine, which is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Both of these work, although they're different classes of drugs, they both work in a very similar way. They um, block the process where serotonin is cleared out of the synapses. So the synapses are like um, the little, I often describe it as about like having two beaches, like in England we talk about like the channel like between France and England it's pretty close and the synapses are like the two beaches either side and the gap in between and you've got your ferries going backwards and forwards and those are all your sort of neurotransmitters and normally what happens is your ferry sort of sets out into the middle that's your serotonin and then once it's done its job it gets cleared away goes into port isn't blocking anything up anymore but what um, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors do is they stop basically the serotonin going into port. They sort of say no, you've got to stay in the shipping lanes. So you get increased serotonin in that synapse. It it doesn't get cleared away anymore. It gets left in there once it's been secreted. So our serotonin starts to go up in in the nervous system. And with serotonin, its functions are the fact that it it increases thresholds. So it actually makes you less reactive to things because your thresholds are increasing. Um, it increases sensory filtering, which again is really helpful in terms of triggers because you're actually just not going to be paying as much attention to every single detail about, you know, all the hugely overwhelming sensory overload you're getting in your environment. And it also imp- increases impulse control. So again, for these behaviors where there is that, I say compulsive, it's arguably it probably it might not be compulsive because that's quite a human thing but where we've got these um strongly motivated behaviors increased impulse control is really helpful if that dog can just pause for a second and think okay have I got another option where your management and your training can be filling that gap so with those essentially we need to increase serotonin so we choose our drugs based on that and we also know that from the research, there is a lot of evidence for using clomipramine and fluoxetine for treating repetitive behaviors in lots of different species.
0: Wow. Fascinating just to hear how it works, right? Because like, obviously I've seen it in real time with clients, right? But just like understanding. So, okay. So, um, so the serotonin continues to build. Is that what, what happens with the medications that it continues to build instead of constantly flushing out?
1: yeah and it will get cleared to a degree because nothing's like a hundred percent but yeah basically it kind of means you get more bang for your buck every bit of serotonin that's released it does a bit more because it stays in there longer and also what then happens is you get upregulation of the serotonin receptors so because there's more serotonin you need more serotonin receptors so your body makes more so then you're actually more sensitive which is why it takes time that is you know That is the downside to these changes, is they're not immediate. It takes about four to six weeks for serotonin um, reuptake inhibitors to take effect. And when we're talking about serious, serious welfare issues like these repetitive behaviors, these are cases where we may occasionally use um, certain types of sedative if we do not feel we can maintain welfare in any other way, and we feel there's a good chance that they'll improve with the right, when the medication kicks in. Um, but generally speaking, if you can manage the environment well enough and lots of these dogs would have been doing this behavior for a long time before you see them as long as they're not physically harming themselves four to six weeks probably isn't that long in the time scale that they've, pro- they've been doing these behaviors. Um, but yeah, your brain starts to adapt and starts to become more sensitive to the serotonin. So you have, um, an increased amount that sort of functional amount as well, like it might not actually be more molecules, but your brain's utilizing it better and has a more uh, higher functional level. Yeah, and like,
0: what? I think the, the pause that you described right where there's just a moment where instead of like reverting to the old pattern of behavior, the dog has a moment to like think for a second. Yeah. That is immensely helpful when it comes to reactive dogs. I have seen it work time and time again, right. Where, you know, there's that one pause and the human has the chance to be like, here's your cookie. We're going this way and prevent this like huge explosion of behavior. Right. And like, I think that it's important that we remind everyone listening that like medications are not a cure-all right behavior meds are not a cure-all they're just a wonderful addition to making sure that the animal's needs are met and that the behavior modification actually has a chance to work
1: yeah and you know so like with repetitive behaviors that has happened because of something in the environment and that animal needs help to feel to be in a different environment to feel better about its environment and it will need teaching new coping strategies it definitely needs that behavioral support but you're never going to achieve that particularly with advanced repetitive behaviors so if you've got a dog that's been tail spinning for months you will not improve that with behavior mod its brain is not capable of changing at that point it is highly addicted to that behavior um so Yes, there's lots of other things you need to do, but they are not going to work unless you can actually help its brain just chill a little bit and not feel so driven to just do this behavior again and again and again. Um, Because there's just there's no time if you're just chasing your tail all the time, you don't have time to be thinking about doing anything else. And you're certainly not going to be resting properly, sleeping properly, feeling like you're in a situation where learning's going to be quick and easy and, and a good process. So, yes, you definitely need the whole package. But I guess I think for me, repetitive behaviours is one of those where I rarely do much other than management. I don't do a lot of training until the drugs are on board because those dogs are having a really tough time.
0: Right. Yeah, and I think that timeline is important. Right, that we're recognizing that, like, you know, there may just be a level of like we need to give the dog time to the 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 meds a chance to like reach the brain and do what it needs to do before
1: we're worried about any other intervention. Yeah. Sometimes I say you just need to take your time, wait for things to work, change the management. Just giving people advice on how to manage it will still have a really big impact. Like management is hugely powerful. So you can still be doing loads, even though you might not be training, you can still be achieving loads just by telling the owners how to react, how not to react, et cetera. And just giving those drugs time to kick in, giving that brain a bit of downtime. Then when they're in a better place, let's crack on and address those underlying issues that that have driven that behavior. Yeah. Okay, so can you speak to
0: meds that maybe have a more immediate effect?
1: Yeah. So um, my other example I was going to, I was going to speak about, which actually is uh, good because they are super quick, um, was a ra- hyperarousal. So what we, I think, again, we have to think, what are we actually talking about? What's going on in the brain? So when we think about hyperarousal, we generally are talking about these dogs that are just wired, like they are ready and that's really important because those dogs are also quite dangerous. You know, not all of them, but if you have dogs that have um, a propensity to utilize aggression or to become highly frustrated, if they are over aroused, they are gonna tip much easier. And um, from a risk point of view, dogs that are hyper aroused and already have some um, history of utilizing aggressive behaviors, they are not dogs you want to be doing a lot with, because they're very, very difficult. um Because essentially, when you are hyper aroused, you are in your fight or flight mode. Even if it's fun, like even if it's that you've been playing a game, essentially your stress hormones, your your adrenaline and noradrenaline are really high, and you're basically ready for a fight or to run off. And when you're in that state, you can't you can't really listen to stuff like that's when you know these dogs don't listen to known cues because it's not what their brain is worried about their body is ready for life or death fight or flight even though that probably isn't the situation they're in that's what their hormones are telling them so like if you have dogs with aggressive tendencies and they get really hyped that's really dangerous because you can't probably use your cued behaviors to try and Calm them down and work your way out of that situation. So we also see it in other situations as well. And um, I'm working with a dog at the moment that's got um some neurological um illness. So his brain tissue is actually shrinking. When you scan his brain, he's actually got deg- degradation of his brain tissue. And he has got quite abnormal behavior as you can imagine and he basically flips really quickly between like all his emotions like he'll be really happy and then he'll be really scared and he doesn't really do anything in the middle everything is really intense and his issue particularly is he gets super excited at going out for walk times and then he starts trying to attack his actual it's actually his best friend in the house there's numerous dogs but he always goes for his best mate and he starts chasing him around and pulling his hair and trying to pin him down um and he's just too aroused and he then just redirects um so with those situations we need to look at okay we basically need to reduce arousal and what we mean by that is we need to reduce noradrenaline and adrenaline we need to reduce those immediate stress hormones. so when we look at that, we then think, okay, what drugs have we got? So one of those is um, clonidine. And clonidine is an alpha two adrenoreceptor agonist and uh, and um, imidazoline, I never say that one, imidazoline, um, receptor <laughs> agonist. Now that sounds super fancy. Basically what it means is it binds to these receptors in your brain, which are normally bound by um, noradrenaline. So you would think that would make it worse because you think okay well you're just replacing the job of noradrenaline which is what you're trying to reduce but there's a negative feedback loop so what that basically means is once it's bound or once your body thinks noradrenaline is bound it sort of says okay i've got enough because it's bound so i'm going to stop reducing the amount that i'm secreting so you basically trick it and you bind these um drugs to the receptors and your body reduces the amount of noradrenaline it's releasing. Um, and that causes a shift in what we call the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems. So your autonomic nervous system is sort of your, the bit of your nervous system that doesn't involve conscious thought and movement. It's things that affect your heart rate and your blood pressure, your stress responses. And parasympathetic is your sort of rest and digest half, and your sympathetic is your fight and flight half. So when we look at over arousal, we're really talking about too much what we call sympathetic tone and too little parasympathetic. So when we use clonidine, we basically get the body to to produce less noradrenaline, um, which then reduces your sympathetic tone because your sympathetic fight and flight is driven by noradrenaline and in turn as that drops your parasympathetic tone increases so you get a shift between fight and flight super hyped up that starts to drop off and you start to get more rest and digest sort of um, hormonal and neuronal activities going on so you get basically dogs that are less hyped up And that works really quickly. So um, you need about an hour. So when you give it, you need to then have like a quiet hour, which is sometimes quite difficult. Um, Some of my clients get up an hour early and give it and then go back to bed for a snooze. But you basically need quiet time for the drug to actually be absorbed and work. But once it's on board, it's, it's there. So you don't need days or weeks or months build up. It's there, it can work really quickly. And you can see some really quick results from that. And again, it just improves manageability. Right, right. So you have that window of opportunity of like, okay, we're getting
0: leashed up. I know you're really excited. Let's sit for cookies and stay sitting for cookies while we get leashed up, right? Like it just opens up that window of opportunity for the dog to be present enough to do an already reinforced and established behavior versus the unwanted like redirecting.
1: Yeah. And I guess it's that your dog is still going to experience peaks in arousal. Like yes if your dog gets hugely overstimulated it might still start lead ragging but you can actually stop it you can manage that you can do a scatter feed or you can engage them in something else and their body kind of has the ability because it's not sky high it actually gets the ability to sort of come back down and engage and be like okay i can still do this whereas before some of these dogs don't seem to be able to like moderate it and it's just once they're up they are up and they are not coming back down um so yeah it just improves that and it enables you to actually put things into place um that then are going to help you and like for example my dog, I say my client at the moment my um with the dog who's got neurological issues he's probably going to be on this forever because he physically cannot he doesn't he is incapable of moderating his arousal because he's ill You know, he, his brain tissue is changing. It can't control itself anymore. There may become a point when drugs don't work because of course drugs are working on your brain tissue. And if it's going, it's not gonna work. But he just needs to be able to live his life with the brain that he has. And for him to do that, he needs a bit of help. And so he'll probably be on it forever. Whereas I actually have another case at the moment who is a tail spin, tail chaser and he is on floxetine. but what we found with him is that once he started spinning, he was off. He got really hyped. He found it really arousing, really reinforcing. Um, So we added clonidine in, and it was really helpful because it meant that when he started to spin, his owners could redirect him to go and do something else, or even if they weren't there, he seemed to be able to just bring himself down and sort of be like, oh, I need to spin. Oh, no, it's okay. I'll go and chew my bone. I'll go and do something else rather than just being like, uh, 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 and going up and up and up and his hormones getting away with him. And literally and- figuratively spiraling, right? Like, Yeah, exactly. You know, once some of these dogs, once they start going, their hormones just go up and up and up. And it's really hard for them to come down again. And it's just giving them that bit more sort of typical response where yes you're going to feel that sort of surge you're going to feel that peak of arousal but it's it's momentary it comes and it goes and then you go back to your normal life you don't end up being wired for hours afterwards
0: right which you know i think on the human
1: end like that
0: is truly powerful because living with a dog who has like capacities like that is exhausting right? Like seeing a dog spin like that is not only obviously exhausting for the dog, but like that's a lot to deal with in your house 24 seven. Yeah.
1: And I think if we empathize with that, like feeling stressed to say, whether that's like, even if it's excited, you won't want to feel like that for hours at a time. Like you'd be knackered like, and you can't think about other stuff. You can't go about your normal life. If you're really excited or really stressed. Um, and lots of us do go about our lives really stressed for long periods of time. Um, but we realize at some point that um, it doesn't make us very nice people. And I think when we think about that, we then think about our dogs and we sort of think, well, maybe that's why my dog's quite cranky and you know has a go at every dog it sees. Um, because it's really stressed all the time. It's not sleeping very well. And it's just having a bit of a crap time. I think once we sort of empathize with that, we can sort of realize and go, well, actually, if I can just make you feel a bit calmer and make it so that you don't feel like that for hours, you just have a little spurt and then you can recover, then why would we not do that? Right. Like, why would we not open up that realm of possibility
0: for the dog to live a life in which they can operate normally? They can sleep normally. They can think normally, right? They don't have to be in this heightened, exhausted state all of the time. Um, Yeah. And I think I I love I love that empathy. Right. Like we can look at it from an empathetic perspective. And I think that that's why obviously your work is insanely valuable. Right. Because you have all of this knowledge. But I think, you know, the dog trainers like helping our clients. Right. Empathize with how the dog is feeling. I think that that opens up this really nice conversation of how meds can help their dogs, right? And then in turn help them and make everyone's life just that much easier. Okay. So just really quickly out of curiosity, what is the timeline as far as like um the potency of the clonidine? So like you it needs an hour to build up, but what's the window of time in which it's working?
1: So um you can use it every eight hours. Okay. Most cases don't need it at night because they're probably not going to be seeing any triggers. But some do. So like say so my case at the moment is using it, who has the the brain issues, he gets up in the night all the time because that's just part of his issues. So he takes it every eight hours because his triggers are internal and they are 24 hours a day. Whereas my tail chasey dog um actually goes to bed in his crate at night and sleeps sound, never spends a night. So he takes it every like he actually does take it every eight hours because always he starts to flare up in the middle of the day but he doesn't have it overnight so it completely depends and like if you have a dog maybe that gets super aroused in terms of like reactivity on walks you might only need to have it once a day if you're only walking your dog once a day you know because of their stress levels etc then you might only need it once a day it's you know it doesn't have to be there all the time but you know use it when you need it but uh, up to three times a day essentially Right. Right. Okay. So this has been so insanely
0: informative. I have done a lot of continued education around medications just for like my own satisfaction, but the way that you have presented it is so easy to digest, right? Like I, you, you've included like the science, but it makes sense. Like we can see like the real life application of it outside of just like how it's working in the brain.
1: I think that's the tricky bit. I think that is the tricky bit is trying to give people stuff that they can actually understand and relate to and process. Um, you know, it's, it's, it is the same as doing behavior mod, isn't it? There's no point giving someone a task that they are not even gonna be able to comprehend. Um, but if we start on a level which people get and are interested in, then hopefully they will keep building on that. Um, and so you can, you know, if you're interested in it, just start reading, start, talking to people um, and, you know, educate yourself because even if you're not the one prescribing medications, it's really helpful to understand them because then you can support your clients as well who, when they are on meds.
0: And I think something that's been helpful for me is, oh, that's fine. Dogs bark. Um, So something that's been helpful for me is like, you know, just pointing out those like pauses that are a reflection of the impact, the behaviors, the, the medication is having that maybe like the clients wouldn't always recognize, you know yeah. what I mean? And helping them understand like just those little glimmers of like, this is why we brought the meds on board. This, this is how it's helping. Right. Yeah.
1: Cause sometimes clients say, you know, like, I don't really know if it's helping, but I guess like this has been happening this week, but I don't know if that's just chance. And like, if you understand how the drugs work, it's saying to them, no, that, That is what we need. This is what we were looking for. Um, And once they realize that, it's like, that's really empowering for them because they're like, oh, like it is working. Um, But I think also the fact that behavior meds are not gonna work first time with every dog, but that doesn't mean it's hopeless. There are lots of different drugs. And you know, like we've been talking about, we are making educated guesses about what's going on in the brain. I can't see what the serotonin level in the dog's brain is doing. You know, We're making educated guesses and sometimes we don't get that right. And sometimes we don't see the response we're expecting. Or like we mentioned, there's side effects. And for whatever reason, we decide this drug's not gonna be suitable to continue. But there's loads of different options. You can always try something else. And I think it's just giving people the confidence and setting the expectation at the beginning that this is not going to be a magic pill that's gonna solve all your problems. You're still gonna to need to do management. You're still gonna need to do behavior mod. And you, this might not be the right drug for you first time. We might need to change things. We might need to tweak doses, et cetera. But if you show them and explain to them what they're looking for, if they start to see any progress, that normally gets them hooked. Because most of these people have not seen any progress in their dogs for a long time. So if they see anything, they're normally on board and they're willing to keep going and keep trying. Yeah, that's so good. Okay. So, um,
0: I want to wrap it up with what your advice would be for, you know, the, the pet guardian who is going to just their regular vet, right? Like, do you suggest that they explain in great detail, the behavior that they're seeing that they need help with? Like you know, I know that veterinary behaviorists aren't always accessible right away to clients, and they're going to like their general practice vet. So, do you have any advice, as like the pet guardian, like the best way they can
1: communicate what they need to just like their their general practice vet? I would try and set up a discussion between your trainer or your behaviorist and your vet, because. Generally speaking, hopefully your vets should um, acknowledge and appreciate the qualifications that your trainers and behaviourists have. It's another reason to be using accredited people so people can trust in their knowledge. Um, and they hopefully can explain not just what the behaviour is but why the behaviour is occurring. So if your trainer can sort of speak to your vet and say, look, this dog is getting way too frustrated. We can't keep them under threshold frustration is peaking then that's causing a risk to the client I basically need to reduce frustration while I work on xyz and hopefully then either your vet's going to know or you can sort of point in the direction of I've read these papers and this is where you know do your research read journals get evidence use textbooks and sort of say to your vets well you know I've read here that like floxetine might help moderate frustration. What do you think do you think that would be suitable? And you know if they don't know, then you can always ask for a referral. I presume it's similar in the states, but you know, yes, you need to be referred to see veterinary behaviorists a lot of the time. But you can ask if it's your dog and you need more help than what your vet can provide, Just ask. You know, vets can't do everything. You know, no vet is going to be able to do everything. I can't do spinal surgery or like do super complicated medicine management of really complicated, like endocrine disease. That is not my forte. So, you know, you can ask for experts in that field. And I think if your vet understands what the problem is, but realizes that they don't know how to help you with that problem, then hopefully they'll be willing to find someone who can help you with that problem.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I love that, right? Like it, it, it literally takes the
0: village. Right. And I think if we can all yeah. just collaborate that that's the best recipe. Okay. So Sophie, for everyone listening, um, can you tell them how they can connect with you? Um, I love following you on social media and everything you put out. And I know a lot of um, my listeners will greatly benefit from following you
1: yeah so um instagram's my main socials so i don't do a huge amount else socials wise so that's um veterinary under was what it what's it called underscore was it underscore Yeah. and <laughs> <Underscore. laughs> um, vet- so on instagram that's veterinary underscore behavior um with a u because yeah. we're funny here in england um, and <laughs> underscore support so veterinary underscore behavior underscore
0: support amazing okay and then i know i have a lot of listeners in the uk if they were interested in working with you what's the best place to contact you
1: um if you go to my website um so that's support.com, no gaps or anything in between then um you can find all the information um there actually with the covid situation at the moment i'm doing a lot remotely so my areas that i cover are greater um so yeah go on there have a little look and even if i can't help you I've got lots of colleagues that I'll probably just put you in touch with. Amazing. Okay. I um, mean, I'll be sure
0: to include links in that in the show notes, everyone, so you can find her very easily. Sophie, thank you so much. This has been so informative. And I know that my listeners are really going to dig all the info you've given
1: them. Super. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to learn more about how you can connect with me for training, you can go to my website, agfdogtraining.com. If you'd like more training inspiration and insight, you can follow me on Instagram at a good feeling underscore NCO. If you'd like to become a member and support the podcast, please check us out on Patreon. You can check us out at patreoncom disorderly dogs. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss out out on any future episodes and if you really like this podcast and you want to go above and beyond for me you could leave a five-star review over on apple podcast to help more like-minded individuals find us